0: And thank you for joining us on the Business Advantage Presents AT Law with Tammy Gaw. I am Alicia M. Pennington, your host and owner of Advantage Athletic Training, here today with Tammy to discuss concussions. I probably know what you're already thinking. Jeez, Alicia, concussions again? Haven't we had enough of that? And the truth is, maybe you have. But we're bringing you a different spin on the discussion of concussions today. And with the quickly changing conversation around the topic, the more abreast you are on all aspects of it, the better off you will be. Tammy and I hope to bring you intriguing dialogue all season long, starting with a topic we all can't get enough of. because of the information discussed and provided in the accompanying podcasts is prepared for a general audience without investigation into the facts of each particular case it is not legal advice tammy Gaw does not have a lawyer-client relationship with any listeners the thoughts and commentary about the law contained on this podcast is provided as a service to the community and does not constitute solicitation or provision of legal advice. The definition of concussion is ever-changing, and it might be misinformed of us to state it on here, as it will likely have shifted by the time this podcast is produced or by the time you're listening to it. The truth is, our understanding and the technology around concussions is moving so fast that we really owe it to ourselves to be getting updated yearly with how things have changed from potentially something we may have just learned the year before. With that said, a definition is our first stab at attempting to understand something. So as of the last meeting of the minds in Zurich in October, 2016, the fifth consensus statement says, quote, in the broadest sense, a sports-related concussion is defined as representing the immediate transient symptoms of traumatic brain injury, or TBI." Pretty ambiguous, right? Well, they continue to state, Such operational definitions, however, do not give any insights into the underlying processes through which the brain is impaired, nor do they distinguish different gradients of severity, nor reflect newer insights into the persistence of symptoms and or abnormalities on specific investigational modalities. So that was really wordy, and I probably lost half of you with the technicalities of it. But let's pause there and ask, Tammy, in terms of a definition, is it beneficial or detrimental that even the top scientists in the world can't land on a single definition of what a concussion is?
1: It's frustrating as medical professionals to operate without a bright line definition of traumatic brain injury. We like bright lines. And it wasn't that long ago that referring to someone as getting their bell rung or taking a knock on the head was considered acceptable vernacular for someone who's received a sports-related concussion. We Mm. still hear some reporters say that on television. Mm. The medical community has not cracked the code for brain diseases, things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, and we're still unable to accurately diagnose CTE in living patients. The consensus statement, I'm sorry, is useful Mm. in that it recognizes that we don't have all the answers And that conventional understanding of the mechanism of injury for concussion isn't comprehensive. The medical community used to focus on singular traumatic head injuries, and now we understand that repetitive microtraumas have long-term effects on brain health and are changing the rules and medical approaches accordingly. Mm. The fact there isn't a bright line definition Mm. means we must work harder to advance the data and the science. And I really think athletic trainers are an integral part of that learning and development. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I've been in different situations and on different panels, and I have benefit of seeing this as both an athletic trainer and as an attorney. There's differing expert opinions on head injuries. We see it in the news. You think you can diagnose CTE with a blood test. Some people claim that different concussion tests are better. Mm -hmm. And the medical professionals are working with lawyers, unfortunately, to litigate definitions and standards of practices. So while it's beneficial for the knowledge around TBI, to be refined and improved, it also means that athletic trainers have to make a concerted effort to stay on top of the statements and the diagnostic tools and all of the best practices around the concussion.
0: That's a really great point. And, you know, the consensus statement does go on to say the term concussion, while useful, is imprecise. And because disparate author groups define the term differently, comparison between studies is problematic. In spite of these problems, the CISG, which is the the committee who put all of this together, has provided a consistent definition of sports-related concussion since 2000. And that definition is, sports-related concussion is a traumatic brain injury induced by biomechanical forces. Of course, you know, we don't want to get stuck simply on the definition of this and our discussion today will be much larger than that. But just as evidence to show how cumbersome and ever-changing this topic is, we can't even clearly define it. So, Tammy, can you kind of frame our thinking about concussion from a def- definition perspective and how we should maybe be approaching today's discussion around the topic of concussion?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, definitions and the developments around concussion and traumatic brain injuries are affecting athletes and athletic trainers at all levels. It could be at the high school level, at the college level. We see it more openly at the professional level mm-hmm. when athletes entering the concussion protocol is the source of incredible discussion and yeah. criticism, sometimes rightly, mm-hmm. um, we see some states taking legislative action around concussions. By the time this airs, the difference between when we record this and when it airs could be the difference between a state introducing a bill. Absolutely. Uh, Maryland introduced a bill regarding uh, contact practices and would be allowed, mm-hmm. and that may not even be in play by the time this, by the time this airs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, other states are looking at limiting tackle football. For children under certain ages.
0: yeah. Um,
1: and in all of this, athletic trainers' experience and knowledge is vital, and we need to be a part of current on and giving input at all levels on these discussions and decisions.
0: Mm, that's a great it's, point.
1: Yeah. It's, it's one of the things that I see a lot of. Part of our living up to our professional responsibilities as athletic trainers is doing what we can to protect ourselves from liabilities. Yeah. Even as the legal landscape changes, and it changes frequently, and mm-hmm. that's unfortunate mm-hmm. because it it means that athletic trainers have to take really concerted efforts to stay on top of what may be in play in their specific states. Yeah. This means pay attention to the news. They have to stay on top of the developments in their states, school districts, or athletic conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to you know make an effort to find CEUs that can synthesize the current information and all of these things to try and protect yourself from personal and professional liability.
0: Absolutely. You know, it's it's a good thing they've got this podcast, huh?
1: (laughs) I think it's a good thing they do.
0: Um, And it's, I mean, it's
1: been, you know, a a few years since I've been out of the day-to-day practice of Mm -hmm. athletic training, and it's frustrating. I Mm -hmm. sit at conferences and listen to sports lawyers and representatives of agencies, representatives of players associations that are negotiating the collective bargaining agreements, Hmm. all of these things, athletic trainers, our input and our understanding of this is key. And I, every time I sit there, I just want to, I really wish that there were, there was more athletic training input at some of these levels because lawyers and I speak as one, there is very rarely a lawyer in the room that understands athletic training sure. and so i wish that uh, that they saw that
0: yeah beyond the science
1: time. there's yeah there's recognizing athletes as whole people so anyone can get a concussion you can get a concussion i've gotten one in a car accident
0: mm-hmm. you can
1: get one by slipping down the stairs you yeah. can get one in a variety of different ways but we have to remember as well that there are communities that don't have the accesses or resources to qualified medical coverage. Yeah. You see this in public schools, mm-hmm. in less affluent areas. They may actually have to prioritize other needs of the basic school system over medical coverages. Mm-hmm. And we must be prepared to advocate for those communities because mm-hmm. those athletes have the exact same right to medical coverage and adequate medical coverage and professional medical coverage. Yeah. Yeah that any professional or college sport has. They have the same right to adequate medical coverage as more affluent school districts. If you are going to put your children in the position where they could be injured in an athletic endeavor, they have the right to have appropriate medical coverage. This has to be a part of our thinking as a professional, as we as a whole tackle the
0: concussion problem. You're so right. And I I do think to an extent it comes from a public policy perspective because I see, you know, in a lot of the groups and stuff I'm a part of, there's, uh, you know, complaints to an extent about the fact that, um, budget is always an excuse as to why athletic trainers are not, uh, pervasive in every single setting and and sideline. Um, but I think that you just hit the nail on the head that perhaps they're not valuing an athletic perhaps they've got greater budget issues. Maybe they can't even keep pencils in their classroom or textbooks on the shelves. And to think about having a medical professional on the sideline is just so far beyond their realm of understanding because you know they're, they're trying to keep their kids uh, fed with uh, lunch items. Um, but really, that, that does come down from a funding perspective and from a public policy. Um, but I, I do agree with you that as the medical professionals, we have to advocate for those athletes, because oftentimes, uh, they, or their parents, uh, quite frankly, they've got other battles to fight. And so, um, maybe, you know, maybe we do have a right and in, a, in a, um, advocacy, um, backing within us that, you know, we kind of got to take that on ourselves.
1: I think that's right. And we see that, um, you know, there are even the hashtag on Twitter, the AT for all yeah. it is I mean, that is definitely something that should be advocated for. Yeah. You you and I have had plenty of discussions about what the understanding for salaries for athletic right. trainers and entry level salaries and compensation, that's an entirely different discussion. Yeah. But it is part entirely different discussion. But it is part of the larger scope of this because it's not just advocating for whether or not we can be properly compensated for doing a job. Mm -hmm. This is a larger scale problem. And if that means that it has to come from a state level requirement and there has to be budget line items to have adequate medical coverage, that needs to be something that we as athletic trainers, as medical professionals, whose interest is the safety of our athletes and our patients. This has to be something that we are willing to, a discussion that we're willing to step into the middle of, because it's not just necessarily a decision made. If you're at a high school, it's not that one high school, it's the district. And it may not just be the district, it may be the county, and it may not just be the county, it may be the state. And that has to be something that we are willing to put our foot in the middle of and bring this expertise that we have spent years Mm -hmm. cultivating and learning. Right. We have an ability to speak on behalf of our athletes,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: we have to be prepared to do that in professional ways.
0: Yeah, these are all really great points. I imagine we're going to get lots of questions about how we can make that a reality. And I, you know, I really appreciate you bringing that aspect up because, um, you know, I, I know that uh, you know certain programs or certain districts. Uh, they really do emphasize, you know, getting involved from a governmental action committee perspective. But, um, you know, I think that really what you're emphasizing is how it affects our day-to-day interaction and and the future of our profession. So um, even if we think, you know, this doesn't apply to me if I'm in a collegiate setting or, uh, you know, I'm I'm sitting in a cush job, what do I need to worry about? But, um, you know, there's also something to be said about reaching your hand back down and uh, that's why I'm so thankful that we have this podcast to share with everybody.
1: <laughs> well, I think you bring up a good point. I mean, it's obviously the discussion about having athletic trainers on the, uh, you know, coverage on the sidelines and at practices is most is frequently talked about in the context of youth sports and the high school level. Mm-hmm. Um, not everyone is a major Division One university. Mm-hmm. If you work at a college level, there may only be three athletic trainers. For twenty six sports, mm-hmm. and regardless of what people choose to think of contact sports, I was a gymnast. Let yeah. me tell you firsthand that is a contact sport. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, I I'm I think I've probably had I think the, the official decision is that I've had three major concussions in my life. Wow! Um, because of gymnastics related things, mm-hmm. yeah. So when I talk about this, you know, and these are at various levels of my competition career. Mm-hmm. This is a, you know, this is not just a uh, youth football
0: or right. a youth
1: hockey right. issue. This is, this is every sport. This is headers and soccer. This is safety and gymnastics. This is wrestling. This is hockey. Mm-hmm. There are, there are all of these different elements. And even if you take it to the college level, staffing levels at colleges, when, when I was in a student athletic trainer, it was under a different context mm-hmm. of, I mean, we legitimately had student athletic trainers. And so yeah. staffing at that time in the mid-90s was a different, it was a different animal than right. it is now. Right. And so now you have to have qualified, as is, as we should, mm-hmm. have qualified certified professionals mm-hmm. at these different spaces. Absolutely. But that means staffing and that yeah. means salary yeah. and that means a lot of things. So that's at the college level. Even at the major division one level, even at the Power Five conferences. This mm-hmm. is not this is not just something that is that we're seeing play out at the youth level. It makes right. a different kind of news cycle. Right. But if you're on the day-to-day practices at a division one or two or even three or NAIA school, mm-hmm. you know what this is like trying to play the staffing game. Absolutely. And that's that has to be that has to be discussed.
0: You know. In the last 10 years, I don't know if there has been a more relevant topic to athletic trainers than the discussion around concussions. You were just saying, you know, when you were at school, um, there was a different situation. And even just since I've graduated in 2009, we've gone from grading concussions and sleeping it off to loss of consciousness, not necessarily even being an indicator. And you know, doing active recovery of brain injury. We're seeing, um, I've, I've spoken to athletic trainers at Stanford and, and they're evaluating and studying the potential of doing cardiac rehabilitation with this idea of kind of okay. flushing the blood. And, um, you know, so while some settings of athletic trainers are going to be exposed to this injury more than others, potentially, like you're alluding to with, you know, youth tackle football, um, there really is no way around knowing the current understandings of it. You know, we can't just say, oh, I'm not at the Division I University or I just work with gymnastics. So from a law perspective, what what significance do you see concussions playing in the profession of athletic training?
1: Well, I have to say there are, They are recently one of the most discussed topics in the sports legal world. Mm. I would say recently they might have been somewhat trumped by the discussion of compensation of NCAA athletes. Again, that's a whole different story. Sure. But at the sport, (laughs) it's always fun to get in those discussions. Um, At the Sports Lawyers Association a couple of uh, years ago, is a this is a fantastic organization for sports lawyers okay you know it's a it's a wonderful meeting it's basically our NATA conference okay um, and they start every year with a two-hour overview of the landscape of what the law is in sports hmm. and this can okay. take a variety of different of different turns mm-hmm. it has ranged from the ownership you know uh, owners, statements that then caused them to lose their team ownership to, you know, the concussion setup. And Mm -hmm. there was a couple of years ago where out of that two hours, a good hour of it was spent talking about the obligation of lawyers to understand what the concussion situation was like in litigation issues. Oh, let me tell you, there were CT scans up on the uh, PowerPoint (laughs) screen, and you have never in your life seen lawyers' eyes glaze over. Talk about deer in the headlights, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I leaned forward and was like, hey, let's play ball. What are we talking about here? And a whole bunch of other lawyers just got on their phones and went, I don't even know what I'm looking at. I think that's a head. I've seen CSI. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> but, that's <you> know, funny, <laughs>
1: but it you really would have, it was definitely worth being a fly on the wall for that. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a few of us, seven that we know about that are, um, or athletic trainers turned lawyers, ATC Esquires, if you will. Oh, cool. And, uh, Three of us were at that at that specific meeting, and we were texting back and forth, thinking, "Oh, this is great!" And then someone else sent me a message that said, "Did you see everybody's eyes glaze over?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that goes to saying these lawyers who have no medical background and whose jobs range from agents to mm. uh, lawyers, general counsels for teams, general counsels for players' associations. Yeah. Um, People that just work in private practice but tend to represent people that do something in and around sports. It's one of the most discussed topics in the sports legal world. Mm. Um, Last year, there was a breakout panel at the SLA that was specifically about the uh, academic studies that went into deciding what the sequence of events for concussion diagnosis and reporting was in Mm. hockey and football wow because if you take the step back from the actual medical diagnosis of it you get to the discussion and this is where the lawyers get very interested you get to the discussion about whether or not what the what the reporting structure and hierarchy is and whether the team doctor whether they have more loyalty to the athlete or do they have more loyalty to the organization? Who pays mm. their salary? Are they independent? The mm-hmm. independence of medical professionals is being discussed at the professional level very, very severely It's because it's, it
0: is, yeah. I was going to say, it's interesting that you say that because I just saw a um, ruling come down from Oregon. Uh, this was just a couple weeks ago um, that indicated that they're going to be potentially changing their... Uh, concussion law, and mostly because they do not view athletic trainers as independent medical professionals because they are employed by the school district, and the school district has the interest of the uh, you know getting return to play back. Um, so you know that's going to be something worth watching to see how does this play out, uh, and it, it it is right in line with what you're saying of. I think that we all like to believe of ourselves that we can make an independent decision and that we don't feel those pressures. Um, But quite frankly, studies show otherwise. Uh, And there's been a ton of research done that indicates that oftentimes athletic trainers are pressured to put those athletes back to play because of coaches or business decisions. Um, So I I think that that's going to be a whole other topic that is going to start to play out. Uh, and, like you said, lawyers probably perk their ears when that discussion comes about. Yeah, very much, very much so. And if we're talking about the engagement with our athletes, it's not just whether or not
1: we're perceived from the outside to be independent. Think about it from the terms of an athlete. If you are not sure where, I have great relationships with my athletes, and I mm-hmm. think I've worked very hard for this, and I think most athletic trainers do and have worked hard mm-hmm. for that. But if you are, hypothetically, a professional athlete who has 16 games a year, and you are not sure whether or not who, who your sports medicine person really reports to, or you don't have that kind of relationship, are you going to be honest in your reporting of symptoms? Yeah, We can do hard tests on so many different things. This is not a Lockman's. There's not a hard positive or negative. Thought. Right, it's not very objective. And We're still
0: very subjective with not. concussion testing, yeah.
1: It's it's subjective and it's individual and that is and there's no real good answer for it because it depends on the relationship with the athlete, mm-hmm. but then it also depends on the relationship that the athlete has with what they want. You hear it now all of the time. You have athletes that say, I would not put my kids in tackle football, professional football players that say, mm-hmm. I would not put my kids in tackle football, athletes that say, I would not have competed. I would have quit football earlier yeah. in, the, in the light of this CTE diagnosis, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I think any of us that have dealt with football players at a certain level would know that there is at least a percentage of them that will roll the dice. Mm-hmm. and they will not be upfront about their yeah. about their symptoms. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And
1: there's nothing we can do about their honesty. Right. But we have to as medical professionals understand what that landscape looks like and what that dynamic is.
0: Yeah, um, and I I think when we get back to, you know, the significance this is, that this is playing, we're touching on a lot of it. Um but there's also like just you know, like you've mentioned from a staffing perspective, you know, liability around the appropriate amount of coverage for an event or like helmet litigation, right? Like that's kind of stuff's coming up. And um, I know you brought up collective bargaining agreements and I want you to explain uh, what exactly that is and kind of the significance that it is playing uh, to the profession.
1: Well, collective bargaining agreements are when you have a, this is obviously very simplistic, but um, at the professional level you have, and it, it happens with unionization. I mean, any, any place that has a union will have some some respective collective bargaining agreement. Okay. Um, but the NFL Players Association, the NHL Players Association, mm-hmm. MLBPA, um, all of that, even the MLSPA, there will be a, 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 an agreement between the players' union. And the owners, with respect to what certain things can can be
0: acceptable. They're, they're negotiating. Well, sure. yeah, they're
1: negotiating for positions is yeah. the easiest way to say it. Okay. And so, if you look at the many people have heard the NFL uh, Eye in the Sky, the athletic trainer that's yes. up in the box and overviews, that was part of the NFL collective bargaining agreement. I see. And, and that so, was something I would assume that of,
0: the players negotiated for their behalf. Type of thing.
1: It it was uh, without shedding too much light on that. It was it was in it was in the interest of both parties. But yes, the players definitely wanted an objective sports medicine, as objective as it could be, a sports medicine observer that was not on the sidelines, because that's what was recognized. Well, I was just going to say, and and that's kind of a bummer. On the sidelines has a perspective that may not have seen
0: it. Right, right. Uh I think. Um, you know, to an extent from a public perspective, it was pitched as, you know, they might be looking at something else on the sidelines. This person is really supposed to be there to catch anything that might happen. You know, their sole responsibility is just to watch plays. But unfortunately, I do think it kind of gets into a little bit of what you were talking about, where potentially the players are questioning the allegiance of the athletic trainers. And, um, you know, I'm in no way pointing a finger in any way indicating that there is any kind of bias. But um, just, you know, to, to quote specific research that has indicated that athletic trainers, when they can report anonymously, they, they do state that they feel pressured from uh, coaches and organizations. And this isn't necessarily at a professional level, but I've, de- I've definitely read studies that, that say that um, athletic trainers do feel pressured.
1: Well, I think it's even worse at a lower level because you don't have the protection. Right,
0: right, right.
1: If- there there was a there was an athletic trainer in maryland who refused to put a kid back into play and he'd been with the school for a number of years oh well over a decade Mm -hmm. i for some reason i want to say 18 years and he was let go from the school yeah uh, Yeah. because of his unwillingness to put a kid to put a kid back into into the game and not release him to play in in another game right and those, those level high school athletic trainers and even some low level college athletic trainers. And I mean, low level strictly in the objective sense. Sure. Um, that, you know, they, they don't have the, they don't have the job protections. Yeah. But as you were saying, these liabilities around, you know, it's not just appropriate coverage. It's the, you know, the youth tackle football. That's a level helmet mm-hmm. litigation is coming up because mm-hmm. there's, everyone wants to say they have the next safest helmet, Yeah. which anyone with any basis of understanding in sports medicine knows that unless you figure out how to bubble wrap the brain inside the skull, yeah. there's no helmet that can prevent, Yeah. Uh. that, that can claim to prevent concussions. But you're talking about negotiating the concussion protocols, and like you said, with the collective bargaining agreements. But that's a concussion protocol at a school district, a Mm -hmm. concussion protocol at the college conference level,
0: Mm -hmm. things
1: like that. That has to be again, athletic trainers have to be at that table because we bring that perspective to it. Right. But all of these topics, these have been topics of full, you know, the full sessions and breakout sessions at Sports Lawyers Association Mm -hmm. meetings, and this Mm -hmm. is an entire group of no medical professionals except those of us that are ATC Esquire. Sure. Uh, And unfortunately for athletic trainers, the litigation that goes on around these things creates a precedent for the liability for athletic trainers in youth contact sports, for the requirements of our coverage for diagnostic tools. There are, you know, there are various diagnostic tools that get offered to athletic trainers that there's not, I would not hang my hat necessarily yeah. on that protecting. Excuse me, protecting me from a from a liability. Yeah, um, it is a dynamic and fast changing area of not only athletic training but also of the law.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know already I've seen entire career tracks developing towards concussion management, research, policy development technology, rehabilitation, and more. You know, I continue to see, honestly, it might even be safe to say that the realm of concussion is a burgeoning sector of opportunity for athletic trainers. And considering not only where concussion is going, but where it has come from, do you see opportunities for athletic trainers to get involved or increase their understanding from the legal side?
1: Oh, absolutely. I encourage people anytime I do, I do speaking at classrooms or events, I encourage athletic trainers to take those, um, to take those steps. Mm -hmm. I've spoken to legislators, uh, conference organizers, lawyers, all of them recognize, or at least the smart ones, recognize (laughs) the importance of having athletic trainers at the table. Mm -hmm. Um, At the professional level, like we said, they're part of the discussion around collective bargaining Mm but even at levels that are not professional athletic trainers need to be proactive in inserting themselves into the process and the discussion whenever possible.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Without mentioning any names, we all know there are other lobbying groups that have the, that believe and claim they have the same experience and training as athletic trainers do in recognizing, diagnosing, and treating head injuries. And we know that's not true. (laughs) Right. We, we work under the direction of doctors we know firsthand what's best for the athletes, mm-hmm. and athletic trainers in all area of practices can have a say. But it means a, assertively stepping up and mm-hmm. getting a seat at the table. Not because sometimes, not because everyone's trying to keep us away from the table. Yeah. But quite frankly, there are some people that don't know we should have a seat, mm-hmm. and that's part of our, I believe, a part of our professional obligation to advance the profession is to educate people that don't necessarily understand what a pivotal role we play in making this whole thing, making this whole thing work.
0: Do you have, do you have examples of like what that might look like?
1: Well, there's, I mean, every year we just had, um, at the time of recording this, we've just had the Capitol Hill day.
0: Uh,
1: and that's obviously not every athletic trainer in the middle of spring can pack up and come to Washington, DC, but The Governmental Affairs, Amy Callender at the NATA and her team do great work setting up meetings with respective uh, congresspeople and senators for athletic trainers from their district to come in and meet with them. Mm -hmm. It's It's the beauty of representative government. You have a right to come in and speak with your congresspeople and your senators. And they set up these meetings to be able to speak about things like youth safety apps and where athletic trainers what our what our position is in the entire scheme of the medical provider system, mm. that kind of thing. Yeah. So if you have the opportunity reaching out to the athletic to the NATA, figuring out whether you could come to Capitol Hill Day, whether I mean Amy Callender knows a lot of things about who is in these individual districts. If you can't come to Washington DC, all of your legislative people have Offices in your district.
0: Yeah, I was going to. I was going to say you could get involved, like on your state level or your your district level as well. Yeah, and that's most of the district
1: uh, representatives that I've seen and talked to. I'll be speaking at the Mid Atlantic Mid Atlantic Athletic (laughs) Trainers Association. Say that five times fast um, in May, and that's a wonderful that that group does. A wonderful job at engaging at different levels. And so yeah. you're know, approaching your state and your regional athletic trainers associations is key. Um, if you have the time and the proactive, look at some of the names around this concussion litigation. Hmm. It may be that some of these people are discussing these things in an area close to you. Maybe you're in the Northern District of California and there's litigation going on around that. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, depending on, depending on what your interest and your availability level is, you know, those are options as well, but it, the entire thing depends on advocating not only for the athletes, but it ends up being our advocating for our professions as a whole.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Great recommendations. Thank you for that. So I want to jump into, uh, some case studies and dissect those. I think that'll be, uh, fun for the listeners to, to listen to your input on, kind of the the who and the what and the where and, and how this all goes down. And um, yeah, so the first case that we have is an example from Rio Rancho, New Mexico in 2016. And this is an athlete who uh, the athletic trainers and the school have diagnosed with a concussion requiring him to sit out for seven days. And as a result, missing the championship game. So the parents fought the decision, uh, hiring a lawyer and filing a motion that would allow their son to play in the game the following week. So they're they're acting very quickly. Um, and the parents stated, um, quote, by barring, barring Sean from competing The family said the school district violated his constitutional right to due process, his state constitutional right to participate in extracurricular activities, and interfered with his educational opportunities. The school district officials say that they were, quote, just following the law and protecting the young players' health and well-being. Tammy, should we stop there to discuss the details, or do you want to know what happened with this case? Let's not stop here. Okay. I will reveal the outcome. Let's let's look at these facts. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So when a state judge heard the case and was presented with the evidence, he felt that he had no choice and, quote, Sean Nieto, which is the name of the athlete, who may or may not have suffered a concussion one week earlier, was granted a temporary injunction and allowed to play in the state title game. So, obviously, it seems that the athletic trainer did what was necessary here to protect themselves legally, but what other factors are we looking at in this case? Um, Because it seems like a really gray area.
1: Well, (laughs) unfortunately, it is a gray area, and the answer that most lawyers give, well, It depends. Yeah, with (laughs) with the caveat that again, we are in any way dispensing legal advice. Nothing here is to be. You should not hang your hat on this as indication that you can protect yourself in one specific way, because the fact patterns of every single case are going to be different. Absolutely. So, with that said, yeah, there are quite a few factors here. Okay. Um, The first one that I find that some athletic trainers and I think it's getting better but not to the point that I feel it should be mm. is that there is not necessarily an understanding of how different states and different courts view the validity of waivers with respect to minors so we oh. you know we like to think that if you sign a waiver Then that's fine, and that's that's how people protect themselves. You know, the institution is protected.
0: When you're saying waiver, do you mean the one that's coming like with their pre-participation physical, or are you saying one like Mm -hmm. against medical advice, or what kind of waiver specifically are (laughs) you talking about?
1: AMA is the against medical advice is a is a slightly different scenario because then something has already happened. And you're saying, I understand that something is in play. I understand that something has happened, but. I am taking this on my own. I see. On okay. my own accord. When we talk about waivers that, you know, pre-participation waivers, there are different states that have different views on that. Um, okay. some states don't consider waivers that are signed on behalf of minors to be valid at all. Interesting. Some states, yeah. And so it can it can somewhat protect from an assumption of risk perspective, which is an entire section of law school. Okay. that I promise you, your listeners don't want to hear today. <laughs> but <laughs> there are, you know, there are certain things that if you participate in them, it is understood that the participants are assuming the risk because it's quite obvious. If you're going to go bungee jumping, there's a certain understanding that sure. it is a perilous activity and not completely, <laughs> not completely void of risk. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, and in some cases, in some states, there are certain events. Certain states have different um, law and case law and laws, even on the books, legislative laws, mm. um, about certain sports. Some mm-hmm. states that tend to be have a lot of horses and rural areas have specific rules around what kind of minor, what kind of waivers in general are applicable and enforceable to equestrian sports. Sure. Places that have mountains have certain rules and law and case law around what kind of waivers are applicable to mountain sports and snowing, snowboarding and skiing and that kind of thing. So,
0: Um, I mean,
1: in New Mexico. Go go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say in New Mexico specifically, the law is not necessarily settled on whether a parent can execute a release for Mm, a minor. Yeah. But in some cases, there are legal or legislative guidelines for waivers of liability in general, specifically for minors. So that doesn't answer the question in New Mexico because it is, like you said, a gray area. And But so, all athletic trainers should be, understand what that looks like for their specific
0: state. Well, yeah, and so that's what I was going to say is obviously we kind of need to be aware of this, but I think mm-hmm. uh, we kind of take for granted that when whatever is given to the athletes or the parents to sign. Um, we just assume that the district is doing that kind of in our best interest or their best interest. So uh, that's that's really tough that, um, you know, we would kind of need to know that back-end information and uh, we can't necessarily just assume that whatever waiver is signed uh, is going to be upheld in a court of law.
1: Or that it will... It will universally protect you. There are, you know, it's never a, I shouldn't say never, but it's not necessarily always a, an all or never kind of situation I see what where you're saying. either will okay. protect you or won't. But I have had conversations with, I have worked with entities. I have been a part of drafting waivers where people think, well, as long as they sign it, I'm completely legally protected unless it's, you know, gross negligence sure. or things okay. like that. That is, you can make any, people can sign anything they want, but it doesn't necessarily mean that a court will enforce that. I see. And so we have to be, as sports medicine professionals, we have to be aware of at least, at the very least, what courts in our state tend to lean towards. Mm, Um, You know, the issue at hand here is, you know, there's an element of a public policy issue here. Mm. When should the parents be able to override professional medical recommendations for their children. Um, And that's, that's not an answered, that's not an asked and answered question at the legal level as well. Um, This is another example of when a formal well-crafted and widely distributed concussion protocol is necessary to at least try to make sure that everyone is on the same page Um, In this case, the parents allege they weren't informed of the treatment plan. Now, whether that's true or not, if the athletic trainer and the medical staff in general has the ability to back up the, this is the plan, this is what was communicated, this is widely distributed, this has been accepted, this has been accepted by the parents, that kind of thing, that is... That gives the athletic trainer the best leg to stand on. And so whether or not it's true that the parents say they were, were not informed of the plan, the documentation bolsters the position of the whole of the sports medicine staff. Right. And best protects the athletes.
0: Yeah. I mean, in this situation, thankfully, um, what I was going to say was in any situation, uh, anybody can at any point bring about a lawsuit. We really can't uh restrict anybody from doing that. But fortunately in this situation, um it wasn't, you know, super egregious. It wasn't that the athletic trainer or really anybody in the athletic department did something wrong. It was more that like you said here, the parents wanted to be able to take that decision back into their own hands and Uh, you know, certainly I hope that that athlete was safe and, um, not further injured in any way as a result of it. Um, but that actually kind of brings me to the next case, which is from Illinois in 2015. And this was a lawsuit brought on behalf of former high school football players stating that the Illinois high school association didn't do enough to protect its players This was the nation's first class action concussion lawsuit against a uh, sports governing body. And the lawsuit states that the association could have done things like mandatory baseline testing for all of its players, the presence of, of medical personnel at practices, and a medical monitoring fund that would have paid for former players to be screened for problems related to head injuries. And so uh, the judge in this situation actually sided with the Illinois High School Association stating that, quote, ruling that football players assume the risk of playing contact sports and that imposing broader liability on the association would certainly change the sport of football and potentially harming it potentially even causing it to be abandoned. However, since filing the lawsuit, the association has passed regulations limiting the number of contact practices that teams may conduct, and a new committee has been formed to examine safety issues. And so Tammy, I think this already brings up a lot of what you've touched on from, you know, limiting practices and um there is an assumption of risk, so uh, you know, what do you see here legally that can kind of be dissected?
1: Well, this is uh, if, if anyone wants to find me for my subjective input on uh, people that claim that additional safety measures will somehow cause no one to ever want to play sports ever again. Uh, we can have a discussion <laughs> over a, a beverage be it alcoholic or non-alcoholic <laughs> of their choice. About Contact the me privately. Discussion. <laughs> yeah. Yes, find me on the direct message. Yeah, uh, because there were a lot of those type of languages that uh, was tossed around, moving from leather helmets to, uh, mm. Mm. yeah, to, the, hard to shell. the more modern. Yeah, yeah, it's the more modern thing in hockey. Uh, there was some discussion about whether or not making hockey players wear helmets at all, uh, was going to somehow single-handedly sink the sport. The idea that preventing fighting in hockey was going to destroy, uh, everything that was good in society. And I mean, which seems barbaric idea, to say, right? <laughs> it's, it's really quite fascinating when you look back. Um, I do a lot of work on, on NCAA reform right now. And there is, uh, there was a discussion back when uh, long before the current television deals but you know in your in your mid 80s that if football games were televised, that it would sink the entire market for people coming to see live sporting mm-hmm. events. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think we all know how that how yeah. that turned out. Yeah. but in this specific case, if you go back, we are again looking at situations where, Parents could be executing releases on behalf of minors, mm-hmm. but in Illinois, unlike New Mexico, there is case law on whether parents can execute these releases. Interesting. So, okay. Yes, from a policy perspective, again, not a legal advice perspective, yeah. um, this is the kind of case that is getting more attention hmm. uh, because it is the policy discussion about whether or not what the actual obligations are for uh, Athletic associations in general, I high school, see. youth okay. football, yeah. various things, what responsibilities they have to their participants, participants. and their athletes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was at a panel earlier this year in DC where a representative of USA Football was arguing against the idea of limiting contact football for children under the age of 12. Hmm. And in response to his statement, several people brought up the fact that USA Football collects a great deal of money from their business feelings, sponsorship, participation fees, that kind of thing, and yet does not require their member teams and leagues to provide adequate sports medicine coverage. Uh, there are people that believe they don't require their coaches to go through enough training and certification, mm. and this is a problem. And when you talk about things that could be the subject of litigation, it may not be a situation where an athletic trainer gets sued, yeah. but it could be a situation where an athletic trainer is a witness and deposed in a lawsuit and so, believe me i've been there that's not fun yeah that seems scary. so <laughs> not fun at all even if you have you know you, you did nothing wrong and you're just a witness it is terrifying i can imagine so yeah to excuse liability because it might quote mess up the game uh is a mentality that it, i believe is becoming it's rapidly becoming untenable. Mm -hmm. And in this space of when people are starting to say, you know, that's not entirely correct. Athletic trainers need to be able and willing to step up to defend the rights Mm -hmm. of those athletes to medical coverage, particularly when they're paying large organizations thousands of dollars to participate in their to participate in the the games and their leagues.
0: Yes, preach
1: you are (laughs) you are writing these people a check. And they're telling you they don't owe you a right to safety, yeah, to basic medical coverage. Yeah, I'm I call BS. Yeah, is all I'm saying. <laughs> um, and so it's good in this case that it caused the association to act on the number of contact practices. Right. Because some people think of lawsuits as things that are going to try and make somebody money. Sometimes right. you bring a lawsuit to change. A policy or change of procedure, yeah. And so, if bringing that lawsuit meant that the association changed its policies and practices and its its procedures, mm-hmm. that can be considered a win, yeah. And so, it's a start, yeah. And with the participation numbers of children decreasing, these organizations and associates are going to have to start looking harder at those options because sure. they have seen you know, they, they don't have necessarily the gravy train that everybody just assumes kids will go in. There are, when you have professional football players saying that they are not going to allow their male children mm-hmm. to play the sport that they played, believe me, there are people paying attention it to that. It makes
0: a trend. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. It's not, it's not just the, you know, the moms, people say the soccer moms or various other pejorative things that, we could label mm-hmm. as being the ones that are keeping kids out of practices. But I hear a lot of fathers who played football saying mm-hmm. my kids are not going to play contact football. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tom Brady didn't play youth contact football, and I think we can all agree that he's doing okay.
0: He's doing quite fine for himself.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you know, I don't believe he has any problem lifting his fingers with all of the Super Bowl rings. No. <laughs> But on that same panel that I mentioned earlier, where the USA football representative was trying to say that limiting contact practice was somehow Mm -hmm. going to destroy the game as we know it, Um, on that panel was Buddy Tiemans, who's the head coach at Dartmouth. Okay. And in 2011, he, I mean, he made it on 60 Minutes. He made a lot of news because he announced a ban on tackle football at practices. They got a robotic tackle dummy. Yeah. Yeah. They those kids do not tackle at
0: practices. And yeah, they he got the tackling dummy. Other. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Did they he see did he see other. a decrease in injuries at all? Did he mention
1: 80% decreased player injuries? Wow. It decreased player injuries by 80%. Incredible. Yeah. Now that's obviously a university that has money to buy robotic tackling dummies. Again, sure. we go back to the the difference in uh funding Mm -hmm. and affluence of different levels and, and different communities. Sure. Um, But, you know, that may not be realistic for high school football teams or anything like that, but what it does is it belies the claim that preventing tackling somehow destroys the game. Um, You know, the NCAA produced guidelines on the number of contact practices that are allowed per week And per season. Mm -hmm. And recently, the Ivy League schools restricted the the numbers even more. You know, the the NFL allows 14 contact practices during an 18 week regular season. The NCAA during two a days, only one can have full contact. You have Mm -hmm. a max four contact per week
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and, you know, and then they have a max number per season.
0: Yeah. I've so seen, this I've even seen that trickle down a little bit to the high schools. Uh, I know specifically in California, uh-huh. they, they had set some limitations and I think kind of what you're saying is, um, you know, there's alternatives to this. We, it's not just, oh, we ban tackling and you know, football is never, is not the sport that it used to be that you can still tackle, but tackle a dummy instead of each other, or you can still tackle, but maybe we don't need to be doing it as much as we used to, or, I know, you know, like the Oklahoma drill is one that was ousted a long time ago, and they thought, oh, it makes kids <laughs> tough, or, but we can still play the game of football without it being as violent as it, as it was.
1: Yeah. And you see that discussion differing between uh, older and younger coaches. I mean, while I was at the University of Oklahoma, I suffered a year, and I do use the word suffering quite literally. <laughs> I had a year. Of working with Howard Schnellenberger,
0: mm.
1: and if you want to say old school, you don't get much more old school than Howard Schnellenberger. Got it. And uh, there were again, <laughs> y'all want to have a conversation with me in person? That's fine, but there, the attitude and the old school mentality that he brought in was incredibly dangerous to our football players. Mm. And it's a reason he lasted less than a year. Sure. But, you know, that is sometimes you get the old school, you know, rub some dirt on it, tape an aspirin to your helmet, you'll be fine. <laughs> I heard that from a coach. I mean, it's it's really quite fascinating. Yeah. But I think as we get younger coaches in and I hate to say it, not necessarily an age thing, but an older school mentality out of the game. Yeah. I think we're going to see a little more acceptance to this. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, it sounds a lot to me like fraternity hazing. Sure. Well, yeah. I, it's not great, but I had to go through it. So you have to go through it. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. just illogical. Right, right. I mean, it makes no damn sense. Absolutely. And will end you up in, it, it will end you up in court if yeah. you don't watch out. So yeah.
0: enjoy that. <laughs> You know, those are those were just two examples, and um, obviously we know that many more have existed where the athletic trainers are named in lawsuits, but I think it helps us build a larger understanding as to the current status of concussion and how it affects us legally. Um, and we're going to go into further discussion next about uh, the implications of it, but just looking at these two examples, I think that we start to see that this is much further reaching than our own world of just athletic trainers. And oftentimes we're at effect to the decisions made by others. In most cases, we are going to know how to act in especially egregious situations, but the ones where um, other parties make the decisions for us, we may not know where to fall. And so I wanted to bring in a quote here. This is from an article in the Sports Medicine Legal Digest issue 3 it is the recent article explores the role of ethics in state youth concussion policymaking and it says quote a recent article published in the Journal of Healthcare Law and Policy explores the role of ethics in developing effective youth sport concussion laws arguing that the ever evolving nature of knowledge regarding concussion pathophysiology diagnosis management and prevention means that concussion policy is largely based on shifting evidence. As a result, when it comes to so-called return-to-play laws, systematic review of the state of the science, and revisiting and revising the laws to reflect that knowledge, it just may not be good public policy making, but may actually constitute an ethical imperative. And so I wanted to bring this excerpt in to demonstrate that this very discussion that we're having is a microcosm of the larger discussion around concussion. And Tammy, I think that you've made that really obvious for us today. And in the the next episode, we are going to talk about implications and, and some other details. But is there anything else you wanted to add here today that before we wrap up?
1: No, I think that's a, that's a great thing. And I really appreciate the Sports Medicine Legal Digest for having recognize that there is this overlap because not all athletic trainers need to go to law school. I don't recommend it. (laughs) Sure. But, you know, the, the idea that, that practicing ATs and up and coming ATs need to understand that there are different obligations that they have to stand up for their, for their athletes. And also an obligation to stand up for themselves, because if they're not, if they're not, actively involved in these kind of ethical revision discussions, the public policy making, that sort of thing, that affects how they do their job. Mm. And there are a lot of really talented athletic trainers that can get railroaded into certain things or feel like they're put in untenable positions. And those are the kind of, those are the kind of positions we need to try and avoid by proactive involvement in the decision and discussion prior I think- to
0: it. Yeah, I think Coming that's I think that is a um perfect little cliffhanger that we can leave because the next episode we're going to be talking about <laughs> position statements and state practice acts and um standing orders and and how all of this kind of affects us and uh we'll get into a little bit more detail on those and um give some application to practice. So Um, I think that's going to be a perfect little segue into our next episode. So thank you, Tammy, for being with us today. And we look forward to having you with us all season on AT Law with Tammy Gaw.
1: Absolutely. I love it. It's, it's one of my favorite things to talk about with athletic trainers is just to show them how much more involvement and input and how important they are to larger discussions like this. So thank you so much for, for the opportunity.
0: No problem. Thank you for listening. You are now eligible to earn your free Category A CEU by logging on to theadvantage.com slash CEU and taking the quiz. If you're enjoying listening or know a colleague looking for free CEUs, please share our link and don't forget to like us on social media at The Advantage. Thank you to Mr. Logistics for the music you've heard throughout.